you know, really all that's required for success. And I tell this to these young advisors here all the time as well. And my other coaching clients, all that's really required for success is for you to truly focus on what you can control. Because if you're focusing on a lot of things out there that you can't control, and though this sounds so evident, right? I mean, we get caught up in it all the time. Though you shouldn't focus on what you can't control, many times we do that and we get into self-sabotage. Yep. And we end up really just, from a mindset standpoint, just wrecking our week, you know, or our, our day or whatever. But we've got to keep improving our work. That's the quality of it. We've got to continue to show that work to more people. And we've got to let go of the outcome. And I've said that many times before is if we can focus on process only, in many cases, focus on process only versus the outcome. And then at some point down the road, maybe pick your head up and see where you are and go, huh, that I'm doing pretty well. Yep. Head back down and just keep working. Process is primary. And so many people write about that today. So I want to share that with you guys about just not getting too caught up on the things that you can't control and really focusing on the things that you can control. So identify that for your business, whatever it is. It may be those things. It may be something different. I know for us, that really hit home for me because it is so true. And getting out of the negativity and the self-sabotage, as I mentioned, is going to, be, is going to serve you well by really just staying away from the things we can't control or, or, or focusing on those as to whether you're successful or not. It's, I sort of try to live by the philosophy of some will, some won't, so what? Some will work with you, some won't work with you, but so what? The goal is be excellent in what you do, know your process, present what you do well, and do it to as many people as you can, present it to as many people as you can. And the ones that don't want to do business with you, it's not your job to try to sell them until the cows come home. It's just, hey, they don't want to do business. Let's move on. Let's find the next one. The next one will, right? Some will, some won't, so what? If you study the advice that's out there, for how to end up loving what you do for a living, you're going to hear the same thing again and again. Follow your passion, follow your passion, follow your passion. But if you then do just a little bit of further research, by which I mean either talking to real people who really do love what they do and saying, tell me your story, <laughs> or looking at the sort of voluminous research literature we have on workplace satisfaction and meeting, it becomes clear that that's really actually counterproductive advice that's the foundation on which the rest of the book builds. And it's counterproductive really for two reasons. Uh, one, it assumes in order for that advice to make sense, it assumes most people have a passion in advance right. that they can identify and then say, okay, let me use that to decide what I should do. The, the whole advice depends on that being true, right? You have to have it to follow. We don't have a lot of evidence that that's true. We don't have a lot of evidence that especially young people come pre-wired somehow to a clearly identified pre-existing passion that happens to be a good fit for whatever current jobs happen to be out there in the 21st century economy. Yeah, absolutely. And so right off the bat, if you tell someone, just follow your passion, that's what they hear. Follow your passion, follow your passion. And like which is what we've heard all of our life, right? We've heard all of our life, though, actually not as long as you would suspect. I looked into it. Really, that phrase, you don't see that phrase show up in the, in the context of career spaces till the late 1980s. Really? This is because I would I would just assume that would go back forever since they've been writing on tablets and <laughs> yeah, whatever exactly else. right that Aristotle was writing about it in the Nicodemian Ethics or something. No, <laughs> correct. It's recent. So for someone like me, I'm I'm 34, which means I was sort of my formative school years when I was in grammar school, junior high. That would have been in the 90s and into the early 2000s. I was at college. That was the heyday of this advice. So to me, that's all I ever heard. But if you go back 10 more years, people weren't talking about it yet. You actually can't find a phrase showing up before around 1989, 1988 in the context of career advice. So it's not some timeless piece of advice. It's actually quite new. 
Man, that's so interesting. I've had people older. I'm 35. I've had people older than us on the podcast before, but just it never came up to where I had to ask, hey, you know, when did that phrase originate or did you hear that growing up as well? I just assumed, as most people do, likely that are tuning in listening to this, that that has been there forever. That's very interesting. Yeah. So that's the first problem with it is that a lot of people, and I would say probably most people at the sort of college, college graduation age don't have clear pre-existing passions. Two, for that advice to work, it depends on this assumption that if there's some topic you really like, and then you do a job related to that topic, that you'll really like the job. So there's this sort of clear underlying logic behind that advice, uh, advice that, hey, if you really like this topic, then if you're doing a job related to that topic, that enjoyment will transfer over to your day-to-day work. And again, Yeah, almost that A plus B equals C. Yeah, right. It seems like a natural syllogism. But again, we know that this is not true in a lot of cases. I mean, think about all the cliches of the, the passionate amateur baker or photographer, right? Who opens up the professional bakery or opens up the photography studio and is miserable. And yeah. What makes us it, really it becomes like, work. It, it becomes, becomes work, work and then they, the passion dies off. Yeah. And so what makes us like work, the research literature is clear on this, is very different than what makes us like, say, a hobby or a topic or a type of media that we like to consume. And so there's just a lot of uh, naivete behind the idea that you can figure out in advance what you love and use that to make your career decisions. And that if you match your work to something you love in advance, then you'll love your work. It works for some people, but it, for most people, it's just going to create confusion and anxiety and job hopping. And I think what happens is, is that a lot of people later in life, after they have successfully developed passion, which the other rules will get into how to do that, when you ask them, what's your advice? They might say in a knee-jerk type of way, oh, follow your passion. But what they really mean is follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work. It's worth it. That's worth fighting for. Don't settle for, I just don't really like this that much. I'm just going to stick with it. When most like very successful people say follow your passion, what they really mean is follow the goal of ending up passionate about what you do. But when you're 25, 26, 21 years old, you hear that advice as find a passion in advance. Use that pre-existing passion to make your career choices. If you do that right, you'll love your career from day one. And that particular strategy is, for most people, going to be a terribly counterproductive strategy if their goal is to end up loving what they do. You know, whenever you start looking at these brain scans and these fMRI scans that are out there, it was just a handful of years ago that neurologists realized, hey, you can actually grow the brain over time by exercising it. You can grow new white and gray matter in your brain. Most of neurology and the study of the brain out there just thought, hey, as we get older, our brain decays and dies and shrinks and just hold on to it as long as you can. And maybe if you're doing some of these cognitive things, it'll help you stay out of dementia or, you know, some of these things. Now it's actually being shown that, hey, you can grow your brain over time, which is really cool. And so I think a lot of what you just said about training the brain, really people need to tap into that a little bit more and understand it. So how do you do that? How do you train the brain? Well, I think without knowing this answer and just answering you off the cuff, I know one thing for sure without a doubt is reading. Yeah. I've got three friends right now whose dads, and these are the people I know about, right? There's probably even more out there, but I know for sure they do this. I've got three friends whose dads, I'm in my mid-30s right now. My friends are in their mid-30s or early 40s, but their dads had them a little bit later in life. So all the dads that I'm talking about are in their 70s, mid-70s, and they are some of the sharpest people that I know. From a health standpoint as well, but just from a mental, you know, a cognitive standpoint, and they read all the time. And the reason they read is intentional. It's not just, oh, I like reading, and by default, I've preserved my brain. Yeah. 
it's I read because I want to preserve my brain, all three of the guys that I'm thinking about. So it's been a good learning lesson for me is just to say, look, as we get older, we don't have to surrender. I mean, we're all decaying and dying, right? Every second that goes by, but we don't have to succumb to this early, premature aging and all of this stuff due to lack of sleep, lack of training the brain, those sort of things. So growing the white and gray matter of your brain, growing new neural pathways in your brain has always been pretty fascinating to me. That's awesome. What do they say? Not all people who read are successful, but all successful people read. Yeah, you don't find in the scientific literature, it's very, very difficult to find work on career satisfaction, meaning or motivation that comes back to a match of the job to a pre-existing trait being important. It just doesn't come up. The things that matter are like the types of things you talked about. So the three you mentioned, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, those come from a a pretty robust theoretical framework called self-determination theory. It comes out of positive psychology, where in a lot of different contexts, having those three things make you very motivated and happy. In my research, a couple other things tended to come up. Uh, In addition to autonomy, a sense of mastery uh, and a sense of connection to people, often a sense of impact on the world. You know, I'm doing something that has an impact and also a sense of creativity that you're, you're creating something from scratch, something that a new configuration, you put those together and you get these five traits. These five traits make people really love their work. And none of those five traits, which come up all the time in the research literature have anything to do with, did this job match some strong pre-existing preference I had before I took it? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's what we're taught. The traits that really uh, lead you to love your job, to find passion or meaning in it, are rare and valuable. You know, lots of people want them, only so many jobs have them. And so if you want those traits in your job, you have to have something rare and valuable to offer in exchange. The market doesn't care that you want a job that's going to give you great flexibility and autonomy, but also a real sense of mastery, and you're going to have huge impact on the world. They don't care that you want that. You have to have something to offer in exchange to get that. And almost always, that's rare and valuable skills you've built up. And so this is the basic exchange that I outline in that chapter is the way that most people end up loving their work is that they put their head down and get really good at things that people care about. And then that gives them massive leverage in their career and allows them to shape their career around the type of things that makes it meaningful to them and away from the type of things that that makes it a drag. So that's the equation. You become so good you can't be ignored. And then the, the follow through that quote, which actually comes from Steve Martin, if you do, then the good things come. Or in other words, if you want the things to make a great job great, you have to be great at something first. Putting your head down, getting good is almost always the first step towards a really good career. This warrior or this soldier that goes to this place and they they pull up on the shore and they all get there to fight. And he says, hey, you guys see that smoke over the horizon where we just came? That's all the ships. They're burning. We don't leave here. We We either win or we die. There is no retreat. And the whole idea of him putting that in Napoleon Hill, putting that in the book is just saying how many of us out there are really chasing our desire to the point to where we burn the ships. Yeah. And I think people hear that sometimes and they go, oh, that's a fun story or that, you know, whatever. You know, I'm in a business. How do I burn ships? Well, that's a metaphor, right? Like, yep. don't take it literally. There are a lot of ways that you can, quote unquote, burn the ships. And I think most people out there, frankly, and I don't mean to sound judgmental here. Maybe I do. Maybe I am calling people out here, <laughs> including myself. But People out there are lazy. They are trying to take shortcuts. They say they've got a lot of desire. They say they're burning the ships. When it really comes down to it, they've always got an out somewhere. Mm -hmm. There is no idea of we can't retreat. We either win or we die. And so I would encourage you guys out there, 
if you've got a passion or a desire that you're really, really saying that you're seeking after and putting everything that you have into it, if you've got an out laying over there on the side, or even if you haven't expressed that to somebody, but you just think, you know what, I haven't thought through it, but I bet if this thing doesn't work out, I could go do something else. You're not burning the ships. That's so true. I love that part about that book. But Edwin Barnes ended up being Thomas Edison's top right-hand guy in creating, you know, helping to create tons of inventions out there that have shaped and changed our life today. And he had that belief. Mm-hmm. And so much of the book, I mean, I just get excited thinking about it. So much of the book, Thinking Grow Rich, I need to go back and read it again, is just about the belief of thinking big. Most people's ability to do deep work, to concentrate, is getting worse. So yeah, we have, absolutely. these are countervailing forces. We have a skill that's getting more valuable at exactly the same time it's getting worse. And my interest is not uh, railing at people for getting worse at this skill or for people being too distracted. I look at it the other way. I say, this is a great opportunity. You have a skill that's getting more valuable at the same time that, that is getting more rare. Hey, if you're one of the few people or one of the few organizations to systematically cultivate this ability, that's going to be a huge competitive advantage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you talk a lot in your book about deep work, but then also go into the shallow work, which I think is where most of us camp out, sometimes not even realizing it. And each day we have the best of intentions. We show up. I talk a lot on my podcast about playing office. These advisors that I'm coaching here or any of my other business clients, you're busy, busy, busy working all day. You kind of just play office. You go home, you're fatigued, you're rubbing your eyes and you're sitting there thinking, what did I get accomplished? What did I really do today? Even though I know I was really busy doing a lot of things. And it's because most of the tasks that you felt good about accomplishing and knocking things off, you were kind of just getting into shallow work in most cases. Now we have a name for it because of your book, but go into the real emphasis behind deep work versus shallow work from a writer's perspective, from your research and really where the pitfalls are there for us staying in shallow work too long. Yeah, this is one of those cases where vocabulary, just having that is 90% of the effort in increasing understanding because let's, you know, we, totally lay down, agree. we lay down the terms. So we've defined what deep work is. Let's just let shallow work be everything else. So if it's not deep work, it's shallow work. Uh, shallow work's not bad. It's not a pejorative. It's just non-deep work. Once you recognize that these are two different efforts, it forces you to think in terms of not just, I worked a lot today. You have to think in terms of, I did this much shallow work and this much deep work today. And when you actually make that division, a lot of people aren't happy with the results that come back because an increasing number of people basically spend all of their time doing shallow work. Because remember, even if you're doing something that you think is deep work, you're you're trying to do something hard. If you're glancing, doing what I call just checks every 10 minutes on a phone, on a tab, that doesn't count as deep work. You're not getting anywhere near the benefits of true unbroken uh, deep work. So actually most people do more or less zero hours of deep work. Yeah, right. Day. And so once you recognize that, that there's, these are two different things, you, you're no longer just satisfied being busy. What you really care about is how much deep work did I get done? And the way I like to think about it is uh, shallow work is like what keeps you from getting fired and deep work is what gets you promoted. Or if you no, run your own, great example. If you great, run your, great. and if you run a business, because I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, it's like shallow work maybe will keep you from going bankrupt next week, but it's you know deep work that's going to triple your revenue. Deep work is what moves the needle in the knowledge economy. When you're not using your, when you use your brain at its full capacity, that's what moves the needle. You get better at things, you produce things that are valuable. Shallow work does not move the needle. It's very replicatable. No one ever made a fortune being really good at answering emails. You've got to fix your mind on exactly what it is that you desire. And then number two, step number two, you've got to determine what you will give for that desire. That's either monetary in 
savings or it's time or it's effort or mm-hmm. it's sacrifice of some other way, you've got to determine what will I give for that desire. And I think that helps frame how important that desire is as well. Yep. If you think of a desire that seems really important to you, and then the set you move to step number two, and you go, okay, I've got my desire, moving on to step number two, what will you give for that desire? If you're not willing to burn the ships for it, as we mentioned, maybe you need to pick a new desire. Yeah. Because I don't know that you're going to stick with it long enough to actually see it come to fruition. And if you do that on enough things, then you feel defeated and yeah. you give up. You know, Step number three is you've got to determine a definite date for that desire to be accomplished. When are you going to have this thing finished? And I see people doing that all the time. They'll get a desire. They may even be willing to sacrifice much for it, but they are not setting a date to have that desire accomplished. Yep. And I think it just leaves too many things to chance. So many people out there today write about the idea that if you don't have a definite date set on the calendar as to when this thing's going to be done, good luck finishing it. Even if there's great purpose and intention behind it. Even if you say in the moment you're going to burn the ships and you're clearly fixed on this goal, when things get a little bit tough, it's easy for us to slow down, pump the brakes a little bit, and just extend this thing out to who knows when. Yeah. And you go for years without accomplishing things and you realize, man, I'm not anywhere closer to where I thought I would be on this really important thing than I was whenever I started it. Number four is you've got to create a definite plan and you've got to do that in writing. You've got to write out, which kind of bleeds into number five as well. You've got to write out a clear and concise plan of that desire. You've got to write out the time limit, not just say it, but write it down on this plan that you're creating. You've got to state what you intend to give, not just think about it, mm-hmm. not just say I'm going to burn the ships, but you've got to put it in writing. There's something about the human brain that is tied to writing that so much research goes back to that if you write down your goals, how many times have we heard that? Yep. If you write down your goals and review them daily and even say them out loud daily, there's just an incredible, I've got the stats on it somewhere, maybe I'll get to it next podcast, but I've got the stats on it within the last few weeks I wrote down of what percentage of people actually accomplish a goal that say it, what percentage of people accomplish it that say it and write it down, what percent of people accomplish it that say it, write it down, and review it twice a day, evening and morning. It's in, And it's like huge. It's incredible. It's incredible. But you've got to write this plan down for everything that you're trying to do. And then number six, you've got to read your written statement out loud twice daily until it comes to fruition. As we wrap up the last topic here, I'd love to know, and I know my listeners probably want to know, you're not on social media, you mentioned. You've got a smartphone, but you don't have the, the social media accounts and things like that on there. Are you using any sort of apps, timers, time blocking, organizational systems? What is it that keeps Cal Newport I know you're human, right? You probably have your times too where you slack off or you get off of these off track of these things. What is it that's helping you throughout the day stay more organized or in touch with this to where, you know, you could just be left to getting off track if you left it up to yourself? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you exactly how I manage uh, deep work in my life right now. Uh, the first thing I do is I lock the time for deep work off on my calendar in advance like a meeting or appointment, and I treat it like a meeting or appointment. So if someone tries to schedule something, during a time I already have put aside for uh, deep work, I treat it like if someone tried to schedule something during a doctor's appointment. Like, I'm sorry, I'm busy then, but here's when I'm available. People understand the social obligations of meetings and appointments. What I do a little bit differently, though, is that I actually go up to four weeks out when doing that plan. I want my deep work scheduled up to four weeks in advance because I found if I don't go that far out, 
too much stuff gets on my calendar, scattered just enough on the calendar that there's no longer any long unbroken chunks left for me to do the stuff that actually pays the bills. So I start by blocking my deep work up to a month out in advance on my calendar. Uh, when I get to an actual week, I always build a weekly plan for that week. I usually just type it up in a plain text file so that I have plenty of uh, flexibility in formatting where I actually talk about, here's what I'm doing this week. Here's what's happening on Monday and Tuesday. Keep this in mind. Here's the general rules, a plan for the whole week. And then when I get to each day, I look at that weekly plan. I, I look at my calendar and I actually block out my hours on an old fashioned notebook. Here's what I'm doing this hour. Here's what I'm doing for these three hours. I plan out the day on that, that notebook, which I bring, which I bring with me. And then I execute. Where am I? What am I supposed to be doing now? I try to eliminate from my life ever sitting there in the middle of the day and asking, hey, what should I do next? That's awesome. I had Lee Cockrell of uh, Disney, executive vice president of Disney in charge of 40 something thousand people and for years ran a ton of their theme parks and hotels and things like that. And one of the biggest things that he talks about in his time blocking seminar is you've got to keep a paper planner and you've got to have a phone. And those are used for very different things. But you have to have both of them in today's time if you're going to stay organized and he wasn't talking about needing a phone for social media either, <laughs> but his was more about the importance of the yeah. paper planner along with the phone. And really, in most cases, you can just ditch the phone other than you might need it to do business, right? You might need it to advance your business, but that is so great. Thanks so much, Cal Newport, for coming on. I know you're uh, you're pretty hard to land and hard to get to. You've got some good filters out there. And uh, uh, I'd reached out to you when I was up in D.C. the other day, and I thought, you know what? This is a shot in the dark, but I'm going to try it. And uh, our good friend, uh, Anders Erickson, hooked us up. And so I really appreciate him reaching out. But uh, where can we steer more traffic your way? If you're not in the world of social media, uh, I know you've got a website out there. Where else might people be able to go, or is the website kind of the best place? Yeah, I'm sort of uh, old school, if you can count an activity common seven years ago, <laughs> old school. But I have a, a blog, calnewport.com, and I write about all this stuff on there, and you can find out about me and the books or just dive into my thoughts on all these issues everything about right i will link all of that up in show notes and man you're just doing so much great work out there and really on the like you know like i said i hate to use cliche phrase but cutting edge of all of this because i'm just not hearing a lot of people talk about it in the way that you are even though more people might as you said might be talking about it out there so thanks so much for your work we look forward to your continued success and really really appreciate your time on the success 101 podcast today well thank you i really enjoyed it take care cal bye-bye Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed having Cal Newport on the podcast as much as I did. If you would like to connect directly with me, the best way to do that is by email and that is info at success101podcast.com where my team and I filter through all of the emails that come through. So rest assured, you will get a response. If you would like to connect with me in the world of social media, the best way to do that is on Instagram under the name at success101podcast.com or on the Success 101 Podcast Facebook page, also under the same name. I hope you guys go out and have an incredible rest of the year as you learn how not to pursue your passions and as you learn to get into more fulfilling episodes of deep work to crush your goals in 2017. I'll catch you guys on the next episode of the Success 101 Podcast. Until then... <laughs>